Well, why is it that so many stories, whether we're talking about books or movies or plays, have serious darkness in them? I mean, most of the stories that we like have something in them that we don't really like, right? They've got a villain, they've got some kind of painful conflict, or some character who's deeply flawed. And virtually every good story has something like that in it. And on the other hand, we don't like stories that go like this. There were three three friends who were always happy, and they always got along, and every day was better than the last, and life was wonderful, the end. We don't like that kind of story, right? It's boring. You might say it's too happy, but I don't think it's just too happy. It feels, when we say it's too happy, everybody wants to be happy, and a lot of people probably say I'd like to be even happier than I am. It's not that there's too much happiness in the story. The problem is the story is not real. Because nobody is happy all the time. Nobody is kind all the time. Nobody has a life where every day gets better than the one before it. uh, All the time. It's, It's not real. It doesn't resonate. That's not what life is like. But good stories have darkness in them because so does the world. And so do we. The only person of whom we can say, in, uh, you know, he is light and in him is no darkness at all, is God. Right? That's what John says about God in 1 John. God is light and in him is no darkness at all. But nobody can say about me or you that there's no darkness in you or no darkness in me. We can't say about the world there's no darkness out there. We can't say about us there's no darkness in here. Because there is. There's darkness in us. There's darkness in the world. People are broken. The world is broken. And the Bible is honest about that. The Bible is full of powerful stories. And one of the things that makes them so powerful is they're real. They're true. The Bible does not gloss over the darkness in the world. It doesn't even gloss over the darkness in the people that we call sort of like the the patriarchs and even the apostles. It's honest about their sins and failures and failings. And that's a good thing. That's a good thing. The Bible is a book of good news for people who are acquainted with darkness. If you're not acquainted with darkness, the world's and your own, you're not going to be able to realize how good the good news of the Bible is. For example, when Jesus begins his ministry, Matthew tells us in his gospel, Matthew chapter 4, he says that the words of Isaiah were fulfilled, which said, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. Jesus has come as the light of the world and he has come into a world that is dark and that is good news because we need light for our darkness. In fact, Paul says in Colossians that what God has done for us who are believers is he says he has delivered us from the domain of darkness 
and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. In order to really understand and grasp how great it is that we've been forgiven of our sins, and that we've been brought into the kingdom of Christ, we have to recognize we've been delivered, rescued, from the domain of darkness, which is where we would be still if it were not for Christ. Now, I bring all that up because John takes a little bit of a dark turn in John chapter 2. At the very end of John 2, verses 23 to 25, it's a short passage. That's going to be our sermon passage this morning. John 2, 23 to 25. John takes a little bit of a dark turn. And in order for that not to discourage us, right, we need to know that being honest about the darkness is, again, part of what makes the Bible uh, trustworthy, right? Part of what helps us trust the Bible is it's honest about those things. And two, it helps that the Bible being honest about the darkness highlights how good the good news is, how good the gospel is. So here's what John says about Jesus at the end of chapter 2, starting verse 23. It says, Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Now, that passage starts out with some good news. Right? It starts out, Jesus is in Jerusalem at the Passover, which is where uh, we left off. Uh, last week when we saw Jesus cleansing the temple, that also took place in Jerusalem at the time of Passover. And John says that during that time, uh, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. Now, the cleansing of the temple, uh, he was asked for a sign when he did that, and the sign he gave them, do you remember what it was? The sign he gave them was, destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up. And John tells us he was talking about the temple of his body. So his sign that he gave them was his death and resurrection, which is coming in the future. Right? So it's a, a good sign, a powerful sign, but it's not something that they could see right then. So what signs was he doing in Jerusalem at that time that was bringing people to believe? A few verses later, at the beginning of chapter 3, when Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night, he says in verse 2, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Now, if you're like me, you read those two statements, and you start kind of combing back through the last uh, few verses and paragraphs, thinking, well, did I miss some signs? <laughs> what signs is he talking about? And the fact is, John just hasn't told us. Right? The Bible doesn't tell us everything. The Bible doesn't record every moment of Jesus' life. It doesn't even record every miracle that Jesus did. Right? As many of them are, you might think, well, that's got to be all of them. It's not. There are many things that Jesus did that aren't even written in the Bible. In fact, John talks about that himself. Um, and so John just hasn't given us 
all the things that Jesus did while he was in Jerusalem, but probably he was already doing things like we'll see him do in other places where he's healing people and casting out demons and things like that. He doesn't tell us at this point specifically what the signs were, but he was doing signs, and signs point to things, right? And so the signs were pointing to Jesus as the Messiah. They were showing people, this is the Son of God, this is the Messiah, this is the Savior. And people were seeing those signs, and they were believing in him. That's good too, right? I mean, that's the whole reason why John came back in chapter 1. We were told that John came as a witness, verse 7, to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. That's the point. Jesus has come. John the Baptist is bearing witness. Jesus is doing signs. All this is supposed to point people to Jesus so they would believe in him. And in John 1, verse 12, it says, To all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. So we're supposed to believe. God wants people to believe. God God sent John the Baptist to help people believe. Jesus is doing signs so that people will know who he is so that they can believe in him. So everything is going well in verse 23. But then in verse 24, things take a turn. It says, but Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them. Now, to really get what is going on here, it's a, it's a, little, um, a, a little difficult to, to bring out everything, but if you see in that word entrust, in the word entrust is the word trust, right? And trust is a word that we use interchangeably with belief. Believe in Jesus, trust in Jesus. means basically the same thing, right? Well, in the language that John was using, the word where he says, many believed in his name, is the same word when he says, Jesus did not entrust himself to them. It's the same word. So it's kind of like saying, these people believed in Jesus, but Jesus didn't believe in them. Or these people entrusted themselves to Jesus, but Jesus did not entrust himself to them. You see that little bit of a dark turn there? That doesn't sound terribly encouraging. (laughs) Right? All these people are believing in Jesus, but Jesus is not entrusting himself to them. Why not? And why does that bother us? Does that bother you? Why does that bother us? Well, one of the reasons I think it bothers us, or at least it kind of bothers me on the surface, is because we are used to relationships being more or less equal. Right? I help you, you help me. I trust you, you trust me. I love you, you love me. We do for each other. We're on an equal footing, right? That's the way we like most of our relationships to be. But our relationship with Jesus is not equal by any means. Because Jesus is not equal to us. We're not equal to him. Jesus is not just another friend, just another person that we uh, have a, a friendship or a relationship with. Jesus is greater than us. Jesus is God. 
Jesus is God in the flesh, so our relationship with him is not equal. And faith is not a two-way street. Again, a lot of our relationships in life, we like to be sort of a two-way street. You, you, we meet each other halfway, or you know, I do this for you, you do this for me. But faith is not like that. We need to believe in Jesus, because we need a Savior. We need Him. He doesn't need us. Jesus didn't come down here because He was lonely and needed a friend. Jesus came down because we needed Him. We trust in Him to save us. He doesn't trust in us to save Him. Right? It's, it's not a two-way street. So, part of the problem, if, if it rubs you the wrong way, part of the problem is that we have to remind ourselves that though Jesus has become man, He's not just another man. He's not even just a great man. He's the God-man. And so our relationship with Him is unlike any other relationship that we have. It's not on equal footing. It's based on grace. God doing for us what we cannot do for ourselves. God doing for us things that we don't deserve to have Him do for us. Giving us far better than what we deserve. So Jesus came down for us so that we might believe in Him. So that we might be saved. But He doesn't entrust Himself to us. He's not entrusting himself to those who believe in him. And if, it, if you're still kind of, you know, I don't know about that. Ask yourself this question. Was he wrong? I mean, our knee-jerk reaction to any question about Jesus, was he wrong, is no. We know Jesus was never wrong. But was he wrong not to entrust himself to these people? I mean, think about what happened. In John chapter 6, we're told, After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. A lot of people who said, I believe in Jesus, I'm following Jesus. At some point, Jesus said some things that were too hard for them to swallow, that they didn't like, and they just turned their back and went home. He was abandoned by many who believed in him. He was betrayed by one of his own own disciples. He was denied three times by one of his inner circle. And that's just sort of the highlight reel of what happened to him. So no wonder he didn't entrust himself to them. If we're going to receive Jesus rightly and believe in His name, we have to recognize that He is fundamentally different than us. He doesn't owe us anything. He comes to us with grace and mercy and forgiveness and love, but not as an equal exchange and not on equal footing. We come to Him on our knees. We come to Him humbled, broken, Desperate, needy, asking for forgiveness, asking for mercy and grace. And then he lifts us up. Now, 
why did Jesus not entrust himself to these people? That's what John answers for us at the end of verse 24 and then in verse 25. Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them. Why? Because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. So Jesus didn't entrust himself to people because he knew them. So there are two reasons why you might not trust somebody. One reason why you might not trust somebody is ignorance. I don't know if you're trustworthy because I don't know you. If I don't know you, I don't have a reason to trust you. I don't know what you're like. I don't know how you treat your friends or your coworkers or whatever. And if I don't know anything about you, I'm not likely to put a lot of things into your care and trust you with them. The other reason why you might not trust someone is because you do know them. And you know they're not trustworthy. You do know what they're like. You do know how they act. You do know how they've treated people in the past. And you know, I'm not going to trust that person because they've proven themselves to be untrustworthy. John tells us that Jesus, not entrusting himself to those who believed in him in Jerusalem, was not due to ignorance. It was due to knowledge. He knew what they were like. He knew what they would do. No one was going to catch him by surprise. Judas's betrayal didn't catch him by surprise. Peter's denial didn't catch him by surprise. He's God. He knew what was going to happen. John says he knew all people, not just those people, all people. Because we all share the same kinds of flaws, right? We all share in that broken sin nature that comes to us as a result of Adam's sin in the beginning. None of us are born innocent. uh, Romans 3 says, No one is righteous, no, not one. We all are broken. We all have a deep-seated sin problem, and Jesus knew that. He knows all people. And John says, He needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. He didn't need anybody to tell him. He already knew it. So, let's get specific. What did Jesus know about us that kept him from entrusting himself to us? And there are a lot of ways that we could answer that question. I want to give you three, all from the Gospels. The first one's from John one from Matthew and one from Mark. What was it about us that Jesus knew was in us that kept us, kept him, even at this early stage in his ministry, from entrusting himself to other people? Right, why didn't he say, you guys guide me. You guys tell me what to do. I'm going to put myself in your hands and you lead the way. Why didn't he do that? Three reasons. Number one, our desire is for a king who will meet our physical needs, but he came mainly to meet our spiritual needs. This is what we saw in John chapter 6 in the scripture reading earlier. Jesus 
feeds the 5,000. We all know that story. We're familiar with it, right? There's five loaves and two fish. Jesus multiplies it. Everybody's got plenty to eat. But we don't often talk about what happened next, the way John tells it. What happened next was they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. In other words, uh, we saw earlier in in the Gospel of John, people were asking uh, John the Baptist, are you the prophet? And that prophet was a, a prophet prophesied back in Deuteronomy 18, where Moses said God would send a prophet like him. Well, what's one of the things that Moses was known for? During the days of Moses, God provided manna in the wilderness, bread to eat, free and for everyone, for 40 years. And here comes Jesus. you got all these people and hardly any food, and all of a sudden there's enough for 5,000 people to eat. Hey! That story sounds familiar. That sounds like Moses. Wouldn't you guys like to live with somebody who could provide bread for you every day and never have to worry where your next meal is going to come from? That sounds great. Let's take this Jesus guy and make him king, and we'll always have plenty of food. That's what they try to do. It says, uh, Jesus says in verse 15 of John 6, Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Why not let them make him king? Wouldn't the world be a better place if all those people had plenty of food? That's not why Jesus came. As good as that work was, it was not the main reason why he was here. He didn't come to set up a kingdom where he could simply meet everybody's physical needs. He came to provide for our spiritual needs, and that required a king who was on a cross. Someone who would die. Someone who would take our place. Someone who would absorb the penalty for our sin on our behalf. And these people weren't looking for that. They were looking for the next meal. Jesus knew our priorities were out of whack. And if he entrusted himself to us, he'd never end up where he was sent here to go. So that's the first reason. Our desire for a king to meet our physical needs rather than our spiritual needs. The second reason is that we want a different kind of Messiah than the kind of Messiah that Jesus actually is. And we see this specifically in Peter and how Peter responds to Jesus. Remember in Matthew 16, Jesus is asking his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they're kind of telling Jesus, oh, some say this, some say that. And Jesus says, well, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you're the Christ. You're the son of the living God. That means you're the Messiah. And Jesus says, he's right. God has revealed this to you. Now, you didn't figure that out on your own. God has revealed that to you. And then... The scripture says, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Okay, you've got that I'm the Messiah. Now let me tell you what kind of Messiah I'm going to be. Let me tell you what I came here to do. I'm going to Jerusalem and I'm going to be killed and then I'm going to rise on the third day. And Peter doesn't say, that sounds terrible, but I'm sure that's the best plan. Right? He doesn't say, I don't understand that, but I trust you. 
What does he do? Peter took him aside, it says, and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. That's what Jesus knew, was not just in Peter, but in all of us. God's ways are higher than our ways. God's thoughts are not our thoughts. We would never have dreamed up a Messiah who was crucified, a Messiah who died. We'd love a Messiah who would get rid of our enemies and give us free bread every day. But a Messiah who's betrayed and mocked and suffering and dying, that was no man's plan. That's not how Peter thought. That's not how anybody else was thinking either. But that's what had to take place in order for Jesus to save us. And so Jesus didn't put himself even in Peter's hands. Because if he put himself in Peter's hands, he wouldn't have ended up on the cross. The third reason, the third thing that's in us that Jesus knew about, that kept him from entrusting himself to us, it is a desire for power, glory, and prestige rather than a desire to serve. We see this in Mark chapter 10, verse 35 to 45, where it says, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him, to Jesus, and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And every parent and teacher knows that trick, right? Hmm, what's hiding behind that question? And he said to them, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, grant us to sit, one at your right hand at one at, and one at your left in your glory. They don't come to Jesus and say, we know you're the Messiah, we know you're the King. When you're in charge, we are at your disposal. Send us wherever you want. Give us whatever job you want. We are here to serve. No, they say, we know you're going to be at the top, but every man at the top needs a right-hand man, and there's two of us. So how about a left-hand man, too? We want to be at your right and your left. We want to be your top two ministers, chiefs of staff, whatever you want to call it. They're asking for a high position in the kingdom. And of course, that's going to come with a certain amount of power, a certain amount of prestige, a certain amount of glory. That's what they are after. And after pushing back on them a little bit, uh, it says, When the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus essentially says, you're acting like a bunch of pagans. That's what all the Gentiles do. The Gentiles who have power, 
Right? They lord it over people. That's what it seems like you're after. But that's not how my disciples are going to act. That's not what I want you to do. I want you to be different. If you want to be great in my eyes, in my kingdom, you've got to serve. Become a servant. That's what I came to do. I'm the son of man. And I am coming not to be served, but to serve. And not just like a little bit of serving. I'm going to give my life in an act of service to ransom many. Jesus didn't entrust himself to us because he knows what is in us. Our priorities, our desires do not naturally line up with God's desires. Or even with our real needs. And Jesus knows that about us. But here's the good news. John doesn't talk about the darkness for the darkness's sake. He doesn't leave us in the dark. He tells us that Jesus is the light. And here's the good news about what Jesus knows about the darkness that's in us. It didn't stop him from coming. And it didn't stop him from loving. And it didn't stop him from persevering when he was betrayed, handed over, denied. He still loved. He still served. He still gave. He still laid down his life. He still rose for people that he knew had darkness in them. People like you and me. He didn't say to Peter, three strikes and you're out, Peter. The cross doesn't count for you. He didn't say, James and John, for your question, you are disqualified. Not only will you not be first and second in my kingdom, you won't even be in my kingdom. I don't love people like that. I don't tolerate people like that. He never said that. Because it's not true. He loves people who ask foolish, selfish questions. He loves people who aren't even honest about knowing Him sometimes. He loves people who are so broken, they don't even want the right things for themselves. He loves us in spite of all of that. It's actually really good news that He didn't entrust Himself to us. Because if He entrusted Himself to us, we would have taken Him the wrong way, put Him in the wrong place, and He would be not the Savior we needed. But He is the Savior we needed, and so He didn't entrust Himself to us. He went to the cross, though nobody else went with Him, though all of His disciples abandoned Him, though He suffered and died in one sense alone. But he knew that was the only path to save us. And he came, in here, he came here because he loved us. And he went all the way to the end in love. John says in chapter 13, having loved his own, he loved them to the end. Despite the darkness. Despite the sin. Despite the brokenness. So it's his honesty about the darkness. And Jesus knowing the darkness that is in us, but loving us and giving himself for us anyway, that makes the good news so good. That all we have to do is say to him, you're the light and there's darkness in me. 
Would you save me? Would you forgive me? I'm a sinner. You're the Savior. Would you deliver me? Would you rescue me? All we have to do is trust Him. We don't have to be good. We don't have to be light. We don't have to be fixed. We don't have to be whole. We don't have to be healthy. We don't even have to want all the right things. We just have to know that we need Him. Because those are the kinds of people that He came for. Let's pray.